the Harpist Podcast. My name is Violet Luca, and I'm the web editor. Death, it's coming for all of us. And whether you take your place in the kingdom of heaven, get cast into a fiery pit in hell, depersonalize within the bardo only to be born again, join some endless party in Valhalla, or simply cease to exist, you, or your family, must address the fate of your earthly remains. As Lisa Wells writes in the October issue of Harper's Magazine, traditional embalming and graveyard burial is ecologically unsustainable, while cremation, which is often touted as a greener alternative, releases several hundred pounds of carbon per body. A newly legalized method of dealing with the dead is natural organic reduction, or more plainly, composting a corpse. Wells considers the momentous changes this procedure heralds. What happens, psychologically, environmentally, socially, theologically, if our remains contain no trace of us? I spoke with Wells, author of Believers, Making a Life at the End of the World, and Anne Newman, author of The Good Death and an expert on end-of-life issues to discuss the ramifications of human composting. Lisa, you wrote this piece. It's really lovely. It sort of finds the poetry, the practicality, and other sort of profound things in the act of composting oneself, which you wouldn't necessarily expect, but yet here it is. And I think, you know, sort of at the top of my mind when I was reading this is how does the decomposition work? Like the Mm. practical, like, could you walk listeners step by step through the actual process of, you know, what, uh, sure. what turns you of, into dirt. Of the, re- the recomposition process? Yes. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks. So they have these devices that they call vessels, which are essentially just long steel cylinders that are adaptations of a different in-vessel system is what they call it. Basically, they're composting drums that farmers have been using for a long time. Because the concept comes from farmers who've been composting their livestock mortalities for for a long time. And so when an animal had a known or suspected illness, they would instead use one of these closed vessel systems. So this is the evolution of of their system. This in-vessel system is designed for human bodies. Mm -hmm. So your loved one is transported to the facility. They are laid in. That is the terminology that the recompose company uses, which basically just means laying the body ceremonially on a bed of wood chips and alfalfa. And then they put more plant material on top of the body, seal it up, slide it back in, and there it remains for the next 30 days. And there's nothing else added to it except for moisture and oxygen. And they have monitors on the system so they can they can keep track of everybody's pH and moisture levels. And then every so often they rotate the drum. And by the end of it, your soil, or eff- effectively equivalent to a soil amendment that you would pick up at a garden store. Wow. And so there is like some electricity, because obviously we're going to get into the greenness of this, but. <laughs> yeah. Um, I don't actually know what their electrical situation is, but I would assume if they're running these sensors, then there's something like that. But most of the heavy lifting is done by these thermophilic bacteria, which are around us all the time. And yeah, what a (laughs) thermophilic bacteria. But (laughs) when 
when temperatures rise, as they do in a compost pile, you know, typically between 130 to 160 degrees Fahrenheit in one of these piles, they become active and they take over. So most of the, you know, bad bacteria that we would be worried about in our bodies are mesophilic bacteria that live at temperatures that we can survive. So when it gets hot, they get killed off by these other guys. Hmm, The life cycle. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Also the heat cycle. But um, the other thing in the back of my mind reading this is how accessible is this? You know, you describe, you know, the, the dirt that was, you were once the loved one is now being taken to a mountain that needs resoiling. How financially, and I guess also just practically, because it sounds like recomposes in kind of a small facility at the moment, how accessible is this? Right. Well, it's sort of, it's taking off quickly, whether or not, you know, these, these things are determined state by state. So each state's legislative body has to introduce and approve the bill. And then there are all these local laws that I don't know all that much about. So they're kind of layers of regulation. So those are those are kind of the big barriers at first. The process itself is is pretty simple and it's it prices out between cremation and what we call conventional burial. So it runs around five thousand dollars per body. And that includes transport. So, you know, whether you're donating your soil to a conservation forest or, you know, if you're bringing it home, which a lot of people have done. I heard of one family that bought a piece of land and they brought their their father to this land and then they're building cabins on it. But this is also very crunchy Pacific Northwest stuff. So <laughs> I don't know what it will look like in New York. But interestingly, when Katrina Spade, who's the founder of Recompose, first conceptualized the recomposition process, she was looking at opening the first facility in Manhattan. So that was always the plan was to make this accessible to urbanites. And it's since been legalized in the state of Colorado and of Oregon. And there are like half a dozen bills that are in committee right now, including in New York. Yeah, I thought it was pretty interesting to see your list in the article, Lisa, because it, I think with the exception of one state, and I don't recall which one, Delaware maybe, it overlaps with the legalization of aid and dying, which is kind of- really? Which is kind of my own radar. And it made me think about this theory that many people who work on end-of-life issues have in that states where this largely public conversation has taken place, and private, but it, but the public con- conversation has taken place around whether aid and dying should be legal has caused the general public to talk about issues that are very difficult, that are taboo in many cases until the legislature broaches them, or sadly, until your doctor does. And, um, and, and so we see that adoption of hospice or even just, you know, the length of hospice stays and general knowledge about end-of-life issues, maybe even adoption of advanced directives and end-of-life planning is greater in states where that takes place. And so I just wondered about that, you know, kind of applying my own tools to, to what you're working on. But it, I, I thought was pretty exciting to think about those multiple issues in the same context. That's fascinating. And Anna, I'm, I'm really curious to know, as a person who's been sort of steeped in this conversation longer than me, have you noticed much shift in people's willingness to talk about these issues since you started reporting your own book or since you were caring for your father? 
I think it's super diverse, right? Like we know throughout history, like the Victorian era was obsessed. Um, There was once a time where people died in our own homes and we prepared them and laid them out, you know, on the dining room table or in the parlor. And so those prior periods where death was our own work were quite different than, you know, the past 50, 60, 70 years where death has been professionalized. And I think now within the past decade, we've seen folks like female morticians like Caitlin Dowdy, or Mm -hmm. prior to starting up here, Violet and I were talking about Morbid Anatomy Museum. There's a fascination quite often with the dead. I would say the dead are much more accessible and interesting than say the dying because then you've got to deal with all these personalities and issues and it's just messier and harder. And so at a moment where we're facing a pandemic and, you know, a, a growing elder population and a disintegrating healthcare system and, and all of these problems, you know, just growing inequality, I think it's easier for us to talk about death and burial and those issues. And maybe as you beautifully make the point in your piece, that can be a gateway to thinking about not only how we live, but how we want to die and what kind of systems we we want as a population to care for each other. Mm-hmm. It's interesting. I, it, it makes me think of how your average run-of-the-mill family member or friend, how when they, you know, with all their flaws and, and imperfections that make them human, how they can kind of take on the, you know, they, they can become sort of deified in death. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it sort of tracks along those lines. So I'm not surprised to imagine that the dying are less um, sexy than the dead. Or <laughs> yeah, no, it's it's, true. it's so true. It's true. Yeah, I think if we just think about it, like we, it's really hard to get excited about. Well, we have the perfect example, don't we? How many hundreds of thousands of nursing home residents have died in the past year and a half? And, you know, at the beginning, maybe in New York, we had some great photos of refrigerator trucks on the street outside hospitals. And that's it. Yeah. There were some great features, a few, and that was it. And it is heartbreaking to me. It blows my mind that as a society, that's the best we can muster for our beloved elders. That's that's what they get. They get a couple French page New York Times investigations. And, you know, we kind of clap the dust off our hands and carry on. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you know, Anne, you were talking about how the ways in which we interface with the dead, how, how they are prepared, what is considered the proper treatment, the respectful treatment, the way to end a life. Lisa, in your piece, you talk about the different rituals for honoring and burying the dead throughout history. And, you know, you kind of reveal that Viking funerals are actually not awesome because they involved rape. There's, <laughs> there's a bunch of other stuff. It was actually not on the boat, all this stuff. Sorry. I gotta, <laughs> I gotta go change my will. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I know. Just no, please no human sacrifice on my behalf. <laughs> Little old me. <laughs> and, you know, the fact that composting yourself is returning the deceased to the dirt. And that is in itself a return to the norm for the majority of human history. So what sort of cultural shifts happened that moved us away from that in the first place? I mean, you know, Anne, you mentioned the professionalization of the funeral industry. And I mean, you know, I'll retreat to my priors, but what role does capitalism play in this shift? (laughs) Yeah. 
Well, you know, as I understand the the rise of embalming anyway, it was very much a, a capitalist opportunity with these as they're frequently described in the literature as kettles of vultures, these uh, undertakers that are trailing the Union Army and selling their wares ahead of ahead of the death of the soldiers, you know, and it, and it was it was a cheap sort of solution to a transport problem because prior to that, people were being transported via these ice lined coffin contraptions if they had to travel some distance home for burial. But I sort of wonder if you know some of it has to do with, I mean, obviously I get at this in the article, but, you know, I think a lot about abstraction and what it does to us. I mean, beyond the considerations about the industry or, or even like the environmental impact of conventional burial, you know, what it does to us to not have the opportunity to be with the dying and then be with the, the corpse immediately after death. And, and, you know, as the home funeral folks describe it, you know, to watch this transformation over the course of a few days of caring for a corpse uh, the way we used to, and how that sort of helps you assimilate the reality of that that person being gone, Mm. and how much of our lives sort of this abstracting process touched on on all of the elements of, of life, you know, like how we get our food and where our water comes from. And, you know, that that sort of outsourcing was was generalized to every area of life. Mm-hmm. I have two favorite books that address this in very different ways. And one is just the classic Jessica Mitford, American Way of Dying, mm. where she takes on the funeral industry. It was wit- written, I think, in 1963. So you, we know that the funeral industry was a, a huge problem back then. But I completely agree with you. Anytime I hear from people, particularly during the pandemic, like, oh, my grandmother died and I can't decide whether I should go to the viewing or not. Or my mother called me to go see her body and I didn't want to. And I say, go always, because there's no greater truth than a corpse. You know, just that person is gone. Your body, your physiology will accept the fact that they are no longer present when you see their corpse. Um, you know, so I, well, com- oh, I completely, ahead. no, I just completely agree with you. You know, I was just going to say, Anne <laughs> and Violet, so dur- while I was finishing, you know, the final editorial rounds on this piece with Matthew Sherrill, I learned that my sister passed away suddenly. Oh my and God. I ha- and I had this experience of, you know, I mean, partially due to COVID, but also I just, she lived across the country and I, and I couldn't get there in time to be with her body. Mm. And um, that's something I absolutely would have wanted to do. And they just, you know, it was the classic experience of death where there wasn't really a plan in place because she was relatively young. And so they just opted to have her cremated. So she was gone by the time I got there, like the ashes were in hand. And I was trying to figure out, sort of game out different ways of trying to replace that experience, you know, even going so far as to having a nightly meditation where I imagine her body Mm. (laughs) decomposing just to help my, because, you know, the irreality of it is so pervasive. So, yeah, yeah, it's not that I, I would never prescribe any particular ritual to anyone. You know, I think these, these things should be up to us, but I, for one, think I would have benefited from having close the gap there. Yeah. I'm so sorry, Lisa. I can't fathom losing my sister. And I'm so sorry that it coincided as you were immersed in all of this. Yeah. Thanks. I mean, in a way, I think it probably helped me a little. Right. <laughs> you know? Right. Right. Yeah. Um, I think the second book that I would mention that 
that pulls these two pieces together is The Work of the Dead by Thomas LeCur. And what he tells us is that throughout human history, we've always had this problem of reconciling the body. It is in, in one way, this person that we loved and cared for. And on the other hand, it is not. It is a piece of meat. It is something that no longer contains the person we loved. And Lecure, who's an academic, I forget where he's at. He's, it's a fabulous book. He goes back to Diogenes, the, the dog philosopher, right? Who said, throw my body over the wall to the dogs and kind of upset or, or at least made very concrete our, <laughs> our great problem with what do we do with, with our body? What does it mean to us? And, you know, we can sit here many centuries away from Diogenes and say, well, we have a lot of solutions for what to do with the, the body. But really what we're seeing at the moment is the simplest, you know, turning it to dirt Putting it in the ground, giving it to dirt is is really the best way forward. <laughs> you know, this reminds me also, I should say that after the article came out, my my mother wrote to me and, and was like, I like the line about the grandparents in the closet. That's pretty funny. But, you know, your grandfather told me when I asked him what I should do with his ashes, that you can go ahead and flush them down the toilet. <laughs> um, so I think that that's, you know, that might be the modern take on the... Diogenes over the wall. Yes, <laughs> right, right. But I think also the modern take could be: let's round up our friends, cover our loved one's body with flowers, say our own special prayers, stay in the house for a few hours, and then have an alternate funeral director come with their car and take them to what you call it a vessel. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, so we're seeing all of these new rituals. And kind of ad hoc, deeply personal, not denominational, although with with cues to the sacred, with references to the sacred, being kind of pulled together to substitute for what we've been using for a long period of time. I don't mean the burial process, but at least the marking, the rituals of it. Mm -hmm. So at the same time, we see a falling away of denominational religion, at least in the United States. We're seeing a whole host of incredibly creative and granular new rituals that are being used by families to mark death. And I mean, as this this process of composting yourself, it's essentially recycling, right? You know, and you can kind of see this as either a paradigm shift, whereas Anne says this is sort of part of a larger kind of recontextualizing of how we deal with the dead because in the U.S. we're a little bit farther away from religion? Or is it kind of like a consumer choice? Is it like buying jeans from recycled plastics or like metal straws, <laughs> you know, like when in fact the worst polluters are not actually humans as a whole, but rather, you know, these 10 companies that just can't stop themselves? I mean, is it a consumer choice? And if it is and it really takes off, is it is it going to make us better at kind of thinking about having this version of the end in mind and changing the the climate path that we're on. So the the point I make in in the article is I don't you're nobody's going to save the world or make up for their you know carbon footprint or whatever the <laughs> language is, you know, by being composted. 
to me, that's sort of beside the point. Like you'd have to be a real obsessive bean counter for that to be the thrust of this thing. Like to me, the point is one, here's an opportunity to really shift the way that we view what our bodies are, you know, or really what our, you can even extend to like, what is our humanity? What is our place on the planet? You know, my book, I talk a lot about this idea of shifting toward viewing human beings as fillers of ecological niches and that that's what we've done for most of human history and that in fact we can be beneficial contributors to our ecosystems in life and this is just one more instance of that possibility you know rather than just uh, this sort of uh, zero impact leave no trace kind of mindset around sustainability like let's look at how we can increase abundance and and it's not actually reachy to look at this recomposed soil in that way because it's it 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 ends up being no different than than forest topsoil in its capacity to give life and of course topsoil is the collection of hundreds and thousands of years of other decaying life forms mm-hmm. you know so we're really just rejoining the community of life to which we have always belonged we only can sort of fool ourselves into thinking that we're not a part of that at all times. So so for me it's really the conceptual shift that is the most that bears the most potential. Mm-hmm. That's beautiful. Rejoining the community of life. Because if you think about, you know, basically since the industrial revolution, we were we were generally sustainable and rural living peoples for a very long time and then we had this bubble of I guess industrialization and capitalism and and all of these things that moved us away from that kind of lifestyle. And I think the pandemic too has made us think a lot about our uses. I know at the very beginning when we thought there were going to be shortages of all sorts, I was saving cra- crazy things like cereal boxes and, <laughs> and, you know, like, and those little ties that come on the bread bag. Like I was saving all of those things. And it seems to me that you're exactly right. Rethinking our, thinking of ourselves as organic material and, and what that does for how we see our consumption and how we see the future of consumption. Mm-hmm. And isn't it, isn't it like whether or not you believe in, in, in an afterlife or any kind of spiritual component, you know, it's, it's nice to know that you might be useful to others. Like, I think that this is something that is missing for many of us in our daily lives, the feeling of, of being useful. It'd, it'd be great if we didn't have to wait to die to, to cultivate that feeling, <laughs> um, you know, yeah. but yeah. you get to this in a wonderful way, Lisa, at least for me, as I read the piece, because um, I was thinking about the churchyards of old, right? It was the stone wall where there was, you know, kind of a crabby grass growing and <laughs> someone died, a hole was dug, their body was put in it. There was a brief ceremony over top. And, you know, the community would carry on and, you know, the grave digger would come out the next time someone died and maybe he'd hit some bones. And, you know, this was the entire community mixed together within mm. this stone wall. As you mentioned, some bodies were facing east and, and the suicides were not or the robbers were <laughs> not. And, and, and there was always ostracism. But this idea of community yeah. was in our bones, literally. And so... We then moved to crazy, you know, the rich people had to be closer to the altar because that was the holier place. That was where the money was. That was all of the status. And so that movement toward individuality 
where we all wanted our own headstone with our name properly spelled and, mm -hmm. and all of those things. But it's, I come back again and again to this idea of community, which is yeah. what you just said. Like we rejoin the, the natural community. We do something good for others. Interestingly, and originally the design for the, for recomposition was a collective core so people would bring their loved ones up to the top of this core and lay their bodies in. And then very slowly over the course of the month, the various bodies in various states of recomposition would, would join together at the, at the bottom. And then you would go pick up your soil and it would be everyone. It would be the collective. And in the end, they, they moved away from that, I think in part because it was just more difficult to control for, for conditions, but largely because it's tough to pursue legalization through the collective. But a lot of people were very disappointed about this, you know, for that reason. We're just not ready. <laughs> yeah, I guess not. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it, it's, it's interesting, you know, the idea of like what we are and are not ready for, because I think COVID might in some ways might impact attitudes towards death in the long run. And it might affect people's openness to a project like Recompose. Yeah, I, I yeah, definitely. I think that's quite true. I interviewed a professor at NYU, Angela Zito, who's who's amazing. Her work's amazing at the beginning of the pandemic, and she said it could change how we view these things or it couldn't. It depends on how long it goes. And I'll tell you, that was a year and a half ago and I did not think we'd still be here. Right. Mm. Who did? <laughs> not many <laughs> yeah. people did because it's it's, you know, thinking about how this plague, let's call it a plague, how this plague yeah. is played out is very different from, say, the Black Death, where, again, it was a very communal experience and it led to people, I don't know, you'd have guys in black cloaks, you know, going from town to town, flaying themselves, talking about how the end was near, you needed to repent. And with this, it seems like, you know, death is very private and it's even more private when we can't mourn together and there seems to be a real disinterest in collectively mourning the hundreds of thousands of people who have died. I recently watched Spike Lee's 2021 and a half to 2001, where he's talking about September 11th and the COVID. And it's, it's so strange because, I mean, obviously people are a lot better at sort of describing their feelings and what they were doing in 2001. You know, because you have the time, you have the space. And in, in the 2020 to 2021 parts, people people were less able to. And there seemed to be there seemed to be a less of a I don't know, like we were so primed to mourn for that for political reasons. Yeah, that's exactly what I would say. And I don't know if Lisa, you'd agree with this or not. But there's what's the political purpose of marking this horror of grief that we can we are too ashamed to address publicly i mean our president has said something uh, you know at the very beginning of his of his presidency but i i can't think of anything else public that's been said and i mean the politics of the september 11 disaster were very clear i mean it employed an enormous amount of of international money and and United States money, like an entire, the, the whole campaign on terror, all of that came out of it. Like in, entire industries were birthed. But at the moment, you know, the, the Biden administration wants to show that they're doing the best they can for this pandemic while you've got the crazy Trumpies 
you know, denying that exists at all. And I think on top of all of that, we're doing nothing for the rest of the world, which is an absolute tragedy. And, and so what are the politics of grieving right now? It doesn't serve anyone, sadly, except for those of us who are going to be hit with a wave of horror down the road. Yeah, absolutely. And I, and I kind of wonder also if there's, if the narrative beats aren't like distinct enough or something like yeah yeah like it's there's there's sort of a shapelessness to it one day bleeds into the next and we learn things and and certain things that we've learned turn out not to be true and there's constant evolution in the virus and you know it's like yeah it's it's sort of hard to find the narrative shape of this thing like I, well, well we'll grieve when it's done is kind of the feeling but there's no done right right because I, right. I was you know the other thing that really kept coming to my mind while I was reading your piece, Lisa, is that the importance of endings in our society and how a story can be judged as good or bad because of how it ends. Like the whole thing rests on that ending. And there's this sort of need to have things be finite and end just so when in, you know, that's not how the world works. But humans just we we try to find ways not to think of it that way. We try to escape it through rituals and other other practices we may take on. But it's like, yeah, there might not be an end to COVID. It might just be with us forever. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And also this that this I think another difference between the two well, obviously the disasters or however you want to frame them, the incidents of mass death are are pretty different in character, but like, you know, that isolation is possible now in a way that it wasn't right. even then, you know, like well, it's a necessity had, too. Right. Exactly. Right. Well, right. I, I was, pre- I was pregnant w- when it hit, I was in my third trimester. And so we were very paranoid and I was having my groceries delivered every day and we really, we really weren't leaving the house. And it often occurred to me like, you know, in another era, which there have been other eras where there have been, plagues, mm-hmm. it wouldn't be possible to isolate in this way. And so right. maybe that would force the issue of, I mean, once again, not to beat a dead horse, but here you have, it's a very different experience to be in a room with people who are experiencing loss collectively than it is to do it over Zoom mm-hmm. or on right. social media, you know? Right. Our lives are completely mediated at this point. Yeah. Yeah. In a nutshell. <laughs> yeah. I think, you know, you're, you're, your interest in the idea of community or bringing that sense of community back or that at the end of your life, you come back to being a part of something bigger than yourself, that you're useful in a way that you might not have been during your life, or at least felt useful. We hope, so, you know, best case scenario, yeah. you feel, you <laughs> best feel- <case>. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, rethinking death and rethinking our legacy in that way could it could it lead to something to you know to a better way of thinking about our lives as we live them in a way that's more you know focused it's like well you know i'm going to do this thing to my body when i die that will help but it's still not going to address my carbon footprint it's not going to address how much i have my food delivered to me by someone else you know how much how much i'm not all the things that contribute to environmental waste, right? So, yeah. Oh, Lisa, I have your quote about this from the article. To my mind, it is the perceptual shift that bears the greatest promise. 
if we begin to imagine ourselves as beneficial contributors to the earth in death, rather as, oh, I can't read my own writing. (laughs) (laughs) Rather than uh, agents of sickness and damage. Yes. I think is the line. Yeah. Yes, exactly. Maybe we can start to see that possibility for our lives. Yep. Put another way, we don't have to wait to die to make ourselves useful. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, this is, again, this is, thank you. This is the sort of the thrust of, of my book also is this idea that to view ourselves as beneficial contributors to our ecosystems is not, it's not a matter of deluding yourself or patting yourself on the back and being a good boy or any of that. It's, it's that this is something that we're sort of, we are animals. We are equipped to do this. We may not always do it, but we are equipped to do this. And that there is immense pleasure and purpose and meaning and positive legacy to be had in pursuing a multiplicity of, of possibilities. So like one of the people I write about in my book is this guy who's been rehabilitating meadow ecosystems in the Sierra Nevada and California. And the thing about that is if humans had sort of been hands off there, and in many ways, they were hands off there. And that was part of the problem is that there was all this conifer encroachment and all this desiccated brush that ends up being fodder for these catastrophic fires that we're having in the West. But when people, you know, maintain those landscapes, they not only can increase the abundance and health of the ecosystem, but they can undo a lot of the damage that we've caused. So you could sure you can leave it be and the land will probably end up healing itself over the course of hundreds or thousands of years, but we can expedite the process. So it's not just that we're capable of enormous damage. That's certainly possible for us, but we're capable of, of doing a lot in terms of, you know, mitigating damage and sowing positive feedback loops for future generations, planting seeds for gardens that we won't live to see. Yeah. So thinking of ourselves, not just, within our, say, reproductive years. <laughs> um, yes. But, but, but thinking multi-generational to think, uh, to think of this country in, in the future. And I think maybe that's something we haven't had in a while. Yeah. And, and we have to remember that people thought of us in this way. You know, maybe not one generation deep or two generations deep, but if you dig back far enough, people were thinking of, of us. Yes. That's beautiful. I have a question. Yeah. You open the piece with a guy named Amigo Bob. And is that his name? So I think that was his nickname, Amigo Bob. Consasano. Yeah. So, so good. Yeah. He, this guy was in a, was a very well-known organic foods guy. So he, he, he helped pioneer the field of organic agriculture and, and then later was like a, a agitator and an activist against what he called the pesticide mafia. Mm. <laughs> Super. I have a second follow-up question. You say in the piece, and I believe you, but I just want to hear you say it again. You, you say in the piece that once those 30 days are up and the soil is dumped out of the vessel, that soil is just like any other soil. You cannot test it and get, get dead body showing up on the test. <laughs> yeah, right. That's the main thing. So they, do, they have a screening process. So before you go into the vessel, they take out anything that is easy to remove, like prostheses or pacemakers, 
And then at the end of the process, they screen for inerts. So like if you have amalgam fillings or surgical bolts and screws and those kinds of things. But yeah, it's really, as the soil scientist Lynn Carpenter-Boggs said, it's, it's actually indistinguishable from garden store soil. I mean, there's a business model right there. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, Conan has a bit on this, if oh. you want to look it up. When they first started talking about this, he did a whole a whole bit where it's like grandma's talking at you from beyond the grave, like on the bag of soil amendment. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's so good. <laughs> yeah. I mean, oh, go ahead. Uh, I just wanted to ask too, like, aren't there, you, you had mentioned at the top there are state laws that prevent us from, you know, as we used to do, like burying grandpa out behind the barn. Um, and I wonder if there's been any movement on changing those because of this attention now to green burial. I, I would imagine that it's state by state. I think some states are a little more lax about that, or it depends on like the acreage, maybe. Yeah, Certainly yeah. people do maintain family plots. But yeah, I don't know how tricky that would be. I studied briefly with um, Jerry Grace Lyons, who is the home funeral lady. She's thought of as like, you know, the the main midwife, death midwife. And she's done a lot of work around really educating people so that they know that you can take care of your own dead, you know? And Anne, you probably know about this as well. Like most people think it's illegal. They assume it's illegal. But in fact, people can't stop you from caring for your dead at home. Right. There are a bunch of people across the country doing really amazing work. There's a woman in Brooklyn named Amy Cunningham Mm. who does this as well. Um, Just extraordinary people who are trying to change the way that we think about it. It's, it's like a lost craft. You know, I, I, I think I often say it's like we used to make our own butter. But if you told me now, <laughs> you go make the butter, I'd have no idea how. You right, know, like right. go, go lay out grandma for burial. We just don't, yeah. we've, we've lost that skill. Yeah. And it's very simple stuff, you know, but it's like most other, what we might call traditional skills. It's, yeah, it's like, it, it does take a lifetime to learn if you're not sort of picking this stuff up in youth or, you know, it's not just transmitted through the culture. Right. Yeah. I mean, the Recompose was originally called the Urban Death Project, as you noted, which was, as you say, was a name, was a direct name as she could come up with a way to refuse euphemism in an industry otherwise saturated with it. And, Mm -hmm. you know, she ended up changing it in order to signal the processes, regenerative and communal aspect, let's say that, you know, this, this idea we keep returning to, but still like the directness of the language seems like a good way of pointing to the subversive aspects of this project. And I mean, to to what extent would you say that Recompose is functioning on some level as art? Because it's it's being kind of <laughs> subversive and it's, uh, you know, it's recontextualizing something in the a really big way. <laughs> that's, that's, that's great, Violet. That's really great. Yeah. I would say that they're, yeah, they've definitely been agitating. They've been mixing things up, although they haven't faced as much resistance as you would think. I, I, I sort of went into the article thinking that they there were going to be a lot of people pushing back on this. And mm-hmm. certainly some people find it appalling, but these are people who haven't thought much about their other options, I think. <laughs> you know, I think the Catholic Church raised a, a, an objection when it, when it came time to sign it into, into law. But but yeah, for the most part, people are like, huh, that's kind of funky, but makes sense. <laughs> yeah. 
And yeah, what have what have you what have you noticed in 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 your work around death and dying in terms of changing attitudes due to you know people pushing for it versus sort of I don't know wider cultural shifts? I think like like I mentioned in the past decade, there's been this death positivity movement, and I um, I'm interested in your asides. Like you seem to be looking at at people on the periphery of that movement where it's kind of the Los Angeles, the kind of rockabilly haircut and, and the dresses and women who are, who are literally doing cremations or working toward green burials or, you know, at home in the basement taxidermy, that kind of stuff. And it's, and it's, that's been intriguing to me, but I'm just a little too old for it maybe. Um, (laughs) And so I've, we've seen that, like a lot of young people who are saying, oh, this is cool and morbid and like the next step for goth. And, and <laughs> yeah. it, it's, a, it's, a, it's a style. And, and that part's been a fascinating. But at the same time, we've also seen the expanding baby boomer generation facing down, you know, kind of the, the Terry Schiavo event, yeah, which right. was 2005, scared the pants off a lot of people. Um, if they hadn't already been scared by, you know, the the two prior cases that the Catholic Church really made an issue out of. The Catholic Church was saying, you can't remove artificial nutrition and hydration, we decide how you die, etc, cetera, etc. Cetera. And a lot of boomers were saying, oh my God, we're starting the right to die movement, we're going to make sure that we can amass forms and, and documents. Or even the advent of DNRs, like the do not resuscitate, mm. because Absolutely. that was just, yep. you never heard about it before. And that and after that, it, they really exploded. Yep. Yeah. Mm. So the DNRs are uh, part and parcel of this whole legal direction that the right to die movement took. So everyone has advanced directives saying I do or don't want XYZ to happen when I die. And the other wing of that movement, I would say is hospice, which got up and rolling in the United States in around 1974. So people were saying, we're going to stop all this do everything medicine. We want people to say, no, I don't want a respirator, defibrillator, whatever. Mm -hmm. I want to go home and die in my own bed. And so those those two wings of the right to die movement have been very prevalent. And at this point, like half of us die in hospice, um, half of all those people who die every year. But no kidding. Hospice is for, you know, you can get hospice service for six months or less. And the average stay at the moment is about seven days. And I haven't checked those data set. I haven't checked that in, in like a year. But I think those numbers are still pretty true. The stays are st- super long because we're still doing everything we can until the hospitals basically can no longer get much out of you and mm. and you and your family decide okay it's time to go to hospice which at this point is a wing on you know the fourth floor of the hospital so you're wheeled upstairs um, oh really huh so so like 1.2 million people i believe it is die in die in hospice every year but it's this this type of last minute stay. And also demographics play a huge role in this. I could go on forever, clearly. But we're seeing people who embrace hospice who put together their end of life documents and, you know, set aside the money and and figure all these things out. They tend to be well educated, white women with cancer, right? There's just like a a, a clear demographic of, of who's concerned. And I think also, if we look at you know, who's doing environmental work, 
there, there would be an interesting demographics in that as well. Absolutely. And I, I mean, I want to, I feel like there have been a couple of things that we, we went by a little quickly <laughs> because <laughs> you guys are so into it. But so really quickly, Lisa, can you talk about your book? Oh, sure. Yeah. So I had a book published this summer by FSG called Believers, Making a Life at the End of the World. <laughs> and it's a collection of essays that are all linked by this sort of pilgrimage to talk to different people who are imagining radically inventive or reinventing radically old ways of life in the face of ecological collapse and climate change. So most of the people that I profile in the book are very much off the grid in every sense, you know, even if they're living in a reclaimed urban area, as one of the groups is, they're sort of have, you know, invented or reimagined their inherited cosmology or ethos to serve ecological abundance and and healing. That's kind of the nutshell. So a lot of them are pretty eccentric and a lot of them are definitely pushing the envelope. But the concept that I keep coming back to about being a beneficial contributor definitely was something that came up again and again, no matter who I was talking to, mm. that many of these folks sort of talk about human beings as the myriad, you know, village and or hunter-gatherer gardener cultures that populated the planet prior to this sort of wildfire of industrial civilization, that these folks were serving as keystone species, essentially, in their environments and practicing this kind of reciprocal land management that was honed over the course of millennia through trial and error and, and through people working together. And that really the way that we, most of us live, like the dominant culture that we've been born into is, is pretty young and untested and, you know, obviously burning, burning the world right now, but that it's not, it's not such a leap for us to return to these forms of stewardship and co-cultivation as some of them call it being in relationship with the plants and animals and other entities our lives depend on. And and can you talk a bit about your well your book and also about the you know sort of the research that you do. Recently you wrote an essay for the Baffler called Death Disembodied which actually talks about the ways COVID has kind of rendered our grieving practices remote and intangible. Yeah, that was the piece I referred to earlier. But thank you. My book came out. It's been a while, but it's just, it's been engaging ever since. Like the timing was fortuitous in that we're looking at a moment where we as a society have had to grapple with the fact that the way we die is not very good. So the book is called The Good Death, An Exploration of Dying in America. And I kind of did what Lisa did without the cool factor, <laughs> like was hanging out with nurses and hospice chaplains and, and a lot of hospice volunteers. I was a hospice volunteer myself and basically was asking the question, why do we die the way we do? And is there a better way of doing so? And indeed there is. And, and we're just not, we're not willing or able to talk about death in the way that we, we should right now. Um, and I'll just say now that sounds pretty effing cool. Yeah, <laughs> come on. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. Well, I'll tell you, you know, in all of this conversation, I've been thinking about my touchstones throughout the pandemic have probably been hospice chaplains, 
right? Like these are the men and women who have been serving hospice patients throughout the pandemic, whether we knew the living or dead were contagious or not, when we didn't know, you know, whether it was carried in the air or on surfaces. These these men and women were putting on PPE and going into people's homes and giving care. And it's really the chaplains who see how faith has changed, who may come from a faith tradition themselves, but have been on the front line recognizing that grief needs to be in the home. It needs to be in the lives of those who are who have suffered loss. And yeah, their work is cool. And I think it's it's probably since 2016, I've just found more and more ways to talk about the problems in how we die. And so it's really nice to be here among fellow travelers. Yes. Oh, man. That's, yeah. I just have chills as you describe these folks serving those people. Yeah. <laughs> they're, they're amazing and they get no recognition. You know, I'm, I'm pleased to see the nurses getting recognition, but I want to see the home health aides. I want to say, you know, the CNAs who make 19 a year at the most and work multiple jobs and are afraid of their lives. Which is very hard work. Yeah. And it's the hardest work we know. It's the dirtiest work we know. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Wonderful, Anne. Yes. Thank you. Um, I'm, I'm so pleased to see your book out there, Lisa, and to just to see, come across multiple reviews. You were in the Sunday Times recently, right? Yeah. This weekend? Yeah. Congratulations. Oh, uh, I think a, a, few, a few weeks ago, maybe. Yeah. Thank Great. you. Congratulations. Yeah, thanks so much. Um, there was something about hippies in there that just made me chuckle. Yeah, like um, the hippies were onto some things. Yeah, <laughs> no doubt. I'm a, I'm a big fan of hippies. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, actually, I wanted to ask about something that you talk about later in the piece. You know, we've talked about the idea of the body as something to be put away, disposed of, not not seen or seen in, you know, with a beautiful tombstone or beautiful, you know, whatever. I also think of the necropolises in Italy where you mm. pay the church to get your clothes changed so your family could come look at you and the latest <laughs> fashions. Again, history of death <laughs> rituals, amazing. Yeah, but yeah. You talk about the aversion to the realities of our mortar bodies and how that runs through our culture in such strong ways, you know, where it's like the anti-aging stuff the you know the promise of eternal life with like cryostasis all of these things that you know preserve what we historically value and, you know youth and vigor and newness that we somehow preserve that and could you talk about how it's had you know the effect that it's had on how we in addition to things like religion how it's had an effect on how we deal with our own mortality and the dead yeah, I mean, I don't, I haven't read, like, you know, studies where they talk about uh, people's views on this particular issue. For me, it's all anecdotal. So, you know, my feeling is, my my gut tells me that when people are obsessing about anti-aging and, you know, setting aside whatever you want to say about, like, cultural expectations and you know, the ways in which we're rewarded or punished based on how we're aging, etc. cetera. Um, but if we just look at like sort of the death avoidance stuff, it's not even like, I don't know that it's linked in people's conscious minds so much. More broadly, this sort of refusal to look at the costs of life, right? Like the cost of, of getting to live is, 
is death in some in some respects, right? Like this is this is the price we all wind up paying. And just in the same way, like the the cost of getting to live in a body that's fed and watered and sheltered, you know, is taken out of view and and hidden from view. And and there's a there's a resistance to it that I think is probably linked to, you know, very primal fears. So I don't want to I guess I don't want to belittle anybody by by chalking it up to sort of an adolescent perspective, you know. But there, but I do think that there's you know psychological maturity or or the kind of maturation of the self as a being that's responsible to others or that feeds that which feeds them, right? Mm-hmm. Like that kind of graduation toward reciprocity is something that we have to be kind of initiated into it has to be something that the culture prepares us for and obviously our culture doesn't do that and our culture you know there's like a lot of profit to be made on people's anxieties and avoidance Mm -hmm. I think another reason why I don't want to chalk it up to adolescence is because I think actually kids and young people are are way more likely to be able to hold these realities close oh yeah (laughs) yeah I mean I'm not I'm not trying to shit on the yard. No, I don't mean you. I'm talking about my I no, I'm referring to my own I'm referring to my own desire to or like my knee-jerk sort of characterization in those terms like you know, grow up and and be responsible. Well, it's it's rejecting you said it perfectly that it's rejecting this idea of wisdom. Where it's just like, well, I don't want to show that I've lived a long life, maybe a hard life. I want to be for societal reasons for because it's just shoved down our throat in every every you know, it, at every turn, but then also, you know, maybe there is because there is like a deeper biological fear there that we, you know, we hide how old we are. We we go out of our way to make sure that we we don't look a certain way, or at least the extremely wealthy do, because they, right. they can't afford right. to do that. Yeah. People who can afford to conceal. Yeah. yeah. Right. Yeah. And I think if we lived in a culture that prized and rewarded other forms of of being, you know, like, um, you know, being the person who's really good at remediating environmental toxins, for example, mm. if that were like a, <laughs> something where you got a lot of laurels, then, you know, yeah. we'd all probably be better off. Right. Work on that, please. I think death is indeed the price we all pay, right? That's just so clear. We're all moving toward that ultimate goal, but, but we don't all pay in equal ways. So we found that money can get you a new face. It can get you a tuck. It can get you better hygiene and care. It can get you better health care. It can get you young people blood. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> right. Right. Like all the all the tech giants who are pursuing, you know, the, the never die technology stuff. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And it's definitely not, it's definitely not the young people who can't get with growing old. I think that it is generational in many ways. We're looking at um, baby boomers who have in, in, in many ways a hard time even talking about death and dying. How many times have you had a friend say, my parents won't even get their will in order. They, they mm. refuse to talk about mm-hmm. it. It's cultural in some cases too. There are particular ethnic subgroups or, or countries around the world where it is taboo to talk about grandma dying. And in fact, it's only been a short period of time since doctors have told women when they are dying. Mm-hmm. So so like there are strands of this denial of death all over. But I think what we've done successfully, quite sadly, is shamed people 
for not just their poverty or their lack of education or, you know, their debt or all of the other shames that we live with in this anxious life, but for being ill. Right. For not yep. affording, being able to afford healthcare, for not having a body that conforms to a very narrow standard, mm-hmm. which is basically what did a friend say to me recently? I said 18 to 25 female 510, right? But she was like, oh no, 15. <laughs> and I was like, ah. <laughs> like but she's right. Yeah, she's right. <laughs> um, and, and so I think we shame people for being sick and for being ill. Like there's a shame that still comes with not being able to get up and be a quote unquote productive member of society. And that is very prevalent among particular generations and, and demographic groups. And I just don't know how we get away with it, how we get away from it rather, other than talking about this more, other than being rabble rousers and performative and, you know, using art and whatever we've got to tell people that it's just not a bad thing to be menopausal. You know, I, I was kind of enthused by the whole, I can't see my colorist during the pandemic, so I'm letting my hair go gray. <laughs> it was, it was, it's, it's the smallest thing. And yet it's like another chink out of that wall of shame that we're all crouching behind. Yeah. Well, I suppose we have, as we all must, we've come to the end. And <laughs> I... Just wanted to, because again, we're we're fellow travelers here. Um, what are your plans? What are the plans you have made, if any, for your body when you die? I, you know, I'm happy to answer that. And I also just want to say, in case it isn't obvious, which I don't think it is, based on the way I've been talking over the course of this hour, I also think dying is frightening, and I'm not above my own like anxieties and aversions so let me just say that oh yeah i can barely think about it i can think about someone else getting (laughs) composted but me i'm just like yeah yeah so i just uh, the only thing i've i've just made a commitment to returning to the subject in mind and um (laughs) and so my plans are to have a home funeral because this is one of my anxious processes it's like before i get on an airplane i like email my spouse in the middle of the night like please give my manuscripts to this person and you know oh. it's like it's like a hedge against <laughs> against stuff but um so i hope to have a home funeral and then i've i've already signed up for the pre-compose program so i'm prepaying for my future composting uh-huh. yeah and i don't know i don't know if i'll donate it to bells mountain or if i'll have them sort of spirited away to my favorite patch of forest also i feel like i should have said this up front but this 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 article is not sponsored by Re- recompose this is just no, you happen near you you they're yeah. one of the first places to do it you followed them other places will follow they'll be yeah. great people too <laughs> oh yeah but Anne, what about you well, I have my own I have my own death anxieties for as long as I've been hanging out with dying people. I broke my ankle last weekend and I'm sitting here with mm. I'm sitting here in bed immobile and my guy says, "Well, we'll just get you those handlebars in the bathroom." And I 
laugh at him because this is basically what I'm doing. And I'm like, no, I'm a young 52. I'm really, I really don't need them. I broke it riding a motorcycle, you know, mm-hmm. it's like, uh, <laughs> and, and then I have to, I have to say, oh yes, I indeed, like everyone else do realize that I am mortal and I have anxiety about how much time I have left. So, so what I did when I started working on this material was I threw a ton of money down on a Cadillac will. I was writing about wills and advanced directives. And there is a lawyer in Brooklyn by the name of Fern Finkel. And I love this person. And she, she, she set up the will exactly as I needed it, like spent time with me and talked to me about my family. So I say, oh, and this crazy aunt will come running in and say, do everything, ignore her. Mm. So like we, we have all of that worked out. Mm. So, so I think really preparing my family around me and, and that's probably the best thing that we can do as our immediate community, right? Is prepare your family, let them know what you want, anticipate how people will react, tell them what to do and make it easy on them. Tell them what you want. So setting that in order is, is something that I've thought a lot about. I'll probably at this point be cremated unless I have an alternate method. I would love to be buried in this beautiful hilltop family cemetery where half my ancestors are but it's not legal anymore Um, oh no kidding yeah it's just in in my home county it's it's not home burials just aren't possible anymore and um and i think really doing this work and maybe you have this as well lisa doing this work thinking about mortality has made me live differently I mean, that's the, the whole purpose of what you've been talking about. It's essentialized things for me. And it's made me think more pragmatically about life, but pragmatically without losing the heart and soul of things. So I will make the hard decisions in ways that entertain me. <laughs> um, I, will, I, will, I will find joy where I can, and I will get through the hard shit when I have to. And, and I think that kind of deathbed or hospice bed or mortal-minded thinking has been incredibly helpful to me. And I want to share that with my family so that when they lose me or I lose them, we all have the tools to deal with it. Mm. Mm. It's beautiful. Right on. Yeah. Well, that's the, that's the thrust of Lisa's piece, which is why I enjoyed it so much. I'm just trying to get rich enough so that I can live forever. Um. Not doing. I'm doing real a really bad job. I need I need to rethink some of my strategies. But hopefully, you're an interesting company. I'll tell you. (laughs) Or you know, and if it doesn't work out, I would probably get composted because it does sound beautiful. Yeah. Yeah. If I can't prepay for my composting, I'll definitely be prepaying for my cryogenic freeze. (laughs) Yeah. That's that's next for me. Just your head, or do you want your whole body? (laughs) You know. Yeah, maybe the head, and I like my feet. So <laughs> we'll keep those two. You'll walk the same. It'll be it'll be the same. You'll be exactly the same. No one will notice. <laughs> All right. Um, yeah. Well, thanks so much. You both are great. It was really yeah, such a pleasure. Marvelous to spend this time with both yeah, of you. This Thank was you, amazing. Lisa, Violet. Yes. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> Take care. You've been listening to the Harper's Magazine podcast, produced by Violet Luca and Andrew Blevins. The music is Cut and Shoot by Febrifuge. 
Harper's Magazine is the oldest general interest monthly in America, exploring the issues that drive our national conversation through long-form narrative journalism and essays. To get 12 issues for $21.97, visit harpers.org save.